The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, if you don't have a Bible, you'll want one. Uh, We have some at the back. You can uh, go back and get them or stick your hand up, and I'm sure an usher or somebody will see you waving your hand around, and they'll get you. They'll get you one, but Exodus 32, we've been following the storyline of Exodus week after week and uh, now for several weeks. If you are new with us and uh, have missed out on some of those, you can find the previous messages online, part one, chapters one through 18, and then 19 through uh, where we are now. But it's been a great journey, hasn't it, church? Man, have you learned anything or, or grown in your obedience? Have you grown in your affection for Christ throughout this study? I hope that you have, even in the recent weeks, have we been in those, uh, those big chapters and lots of things to cover there. I hope that you have been amazed by the, uh, you know, the bottomless nature of the Scripture. I mean, there's just unending study, but God is, is so uh, good there. And so just to bring you up to speed where we're at in the story, remember Moses and Joshua have been on the mountain receiving those laws and instructions from God. That after they were commissioned, they went up and then all the the laws that we've gone through, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and all the furniture and things inside of it, the garments or the clothing that the priests would wear and all these things, they've been on the mountain uh, receiving these instructions. But now as we come to chapter 32, it takes us back to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses and and Joshua, like I said, are at the top, but Aaron and the two to three million Israelites or so are at the base uh, there encamped. And it's uh, the chapter begins in in kind of an old Western fashion of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Any Western fans in here like to watch old Western shows or read books? Yes. Okay. You don't have to be uh, ashamed of that. It's interesting, maybe ironic, maybe this is just how goofy I am. For as much as I dislike country music, I love Western novels and Western shows and things. But it's like this. As we come to 32, it's like a, a good old Western show where, the, you know, where the, the riders are out on the range. They're checking the conditions of the grass and the cattle, and, and they're braving the weather. And back at the ranch headquarters, Ma's baking apple pies, and the ranch hands are getting restless there as they don't have much to do. But for the Israelites here, as we'll see in just a, a minute, it would have turned out much better, I think, if someone had been baking some apple pies for them For the people there, they're getting sinfully restless. And waiting, they turn to some grievous sin that we'll see. Well, this whole time, uh, while they're back at the base of the mountain, this whole time, God has been laying out the way for the people of God to come into the presence of God, to meet with Him, to be near to God. It was a gift so undeserving that the laws and the plans uh, for this gift that Moses was giving to them on the mountain, that meanwhile, the Israelites simultaneously are at the base of the mountain proving why all of that was necessary. Why the laws and the tabernacle and the garments and all the the, uh, ordinances and the sacrifices they would go through, why it was necessary. Because this chapter is then illustrating, it's demonstrating for us this central truth. That our sin creates separation from God. As we get into this chapter, you're going to see it very clearly, that truth, that our sin creates this gap between us and the Lord. 
And we as Christians know that today, apart from Christ, that gap is an uncrossable chasm. Farther than the Grand Canyon is in its span is our sin that uh, is between us and the Lord. And only the Lord could bridge the gap. Only he could come near to us, which is what he did with the Israelites. They were in bondage to the Egyptians with no way to escape, without hope, in the clutches of a wicked ruler and horrendous taskmasters, until God would come through and deliver them in only ways that he could too. And this is how God acts uh, towards us. What he does with us, we who know the bitterness of our bondage to sin with no hope and no way to get out. Like the testimonies we just heard from baptism, dead in trespasses and sin, bitter in life, going nowhere but God. Until Christ made himself known, delivered us from the slave, enslavement to sin and made us new creations in Christ. Laying out a whole new way to live, a whole new way to think, a whole new way to worship and walk and work for Christ in our life. This is the gospel church. If the gospel has not been on display for you this morning, if you've not seen the, the weightiness of sin and the glory of Jesus Christ, let me again call us back to the gospel. But the problem is, even we who are saved, though we who have been delivered from sin's penalty, we know that what Christ did at the cross paid the penalty, the consequences that we deserved. Amen? It was paid there, and we've been set free from sin's power. It is no longer our master. We who are in Christ now know the freedom and the hope that we can say no to sin. We don't have to live any longer in the wretchedness of our sin, but we can now say yes to the things of the Lord. The problem like sin is still present, isn't it? It still wells up in us. It still looks sweet to us at times. We still want to go back for the ugh of sin. And though it's still present, we long for the glory of heaven when it'll no longer be present, right? We have that great hope and expectation for eternity with Christ to where sin will no longer be present. But it's easy to revert back to that, isn't it? It's easy to believe like slaves. It's easy to go back into our sin. And this sin is what puts distance between us and the Lord. It's what creates a separation. It's no different than how when we sin in marriage against our spouse or we sin against a friend and it creates a wedge. In high school, I saw this sign that is, uh, you know, it's really stuck with me. This is before memes and all that. You know, I saw a poster or a sign somewhere. But the sign said this. Well, guess who moved? God is here. God is still moving. The Lord is still near. But it's my sin that creates this distance or this separation. And so our text this morning, it illustrates for us just how grievous this separation is. But it also shows us how to avoid it, how to stay near to God and how to come back to the Lord when we find ourselves at a distance. And so let's get to the text. I've set it up enough. You ready to just get into your Bible? Well, let's get into it and then take it here in four sections. Do you desire to be near the Lord? Then here's the first point. Own your sin. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, 
The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is God's word for God's people. Now, things go bad quickly in these verses, don't they, church? It's, 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 like, oh, it's, it's almost painful to read. Their leader is gone. A mob forms. Demands are made. And then grievous sin happens. It's almost as if, like, immediately the Ten Commandments are given. They're told how this is the foundation for how to live a life before the Lord. And just as they are given, then they break the commandments uh, one and two to have no other gods and to make no other idols, and they just fall headlong into it. Make us gods, fashion us gods. And Aaron goes to this work then to gather the gold and to bring it to them and fashions it, and out comes this golden calf. It's immediately, like instructions are just being given to uh, bring their contributions, their gold and their, uh, their, their uh, uh, costly materials to the construction of the tabernacle where God would meet with them. And instead of following those instructions, they give their gold to create this bull calf idol. Aaron goes to great lengths to create it and fashion it and then to offer uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings and all these things. Now, this is a much smaller representation of it. But I have a friend um, who is a Western sculptor. He makes all kinds of things, life-size things of different uh, scenes uh, you know, that you would envision from the American West of cowboys and horses and Native Americans and, and uh, all kinds of things. And one Christmas, he gave me this little longhorn. And I, I like it. It's a little bronze thing. It was a very meaningful gift. And though it is small, it's very costly. He's got a, a considerable following. And I just put it on my uh, uh, shelf, bookshelf there in Kerrville at my previous church. But I remember one day, I don't remember if I was actually studying this passage or where I was, but I was studying it, and this passage actually came to mind. And I saw this, like, you know, uh, bronze altar, uh, gold uh, calf in my office, and I had to just confirm with the Lord, saying, Lord, this isn't an idol. I, I know this looks a little fishy, but it's not what it looks like. You are my one true and uh, only God in my life. It's not what it looks like. You know, like a kid who's been caught, right? Like, I, I, it's not what it, it looks like. And though I make light of this instance and bring it here, I'm afraid that sometimes we treat sin far too lightly. We make excuses and we, 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 we just, well, Lord, it's not what it looks like. And we try to divert the attention. When we're confronted or convicted, we just defer into the nature that we find the Israelites here. Our response, the right response, the spirit-enabled response is to own our sin. But even as I say that, maybe we don't know what that means. What does that even look like? How do we own our sin? Well, we first must acknowledge that our actions are offensive to God and to others. 
Our actions, our words, our deeds here, as we own our sin, we must acknowledge that our, uh, ac- our sins are offensive to God and others. And secondly, we must say, uh, make no excuses. You just re- take the ownership, you know. They could say here, well, uh, if Moses had been here, if he hadn't uh, delayed, then we wouldn't have done this. You know, if God would just have answered our prayers faster, if he would have taken us out of the wilderness, if he would have done blank. It's excuse after excuse. When the call is to make no excuses and to take ownership, and finally then to repent and to turn away from these actions or these to repent of it, to make a 180 change is how we own our sin. See, and what we'll find here is we're just easily deceived, aren't we? we uh, you know, these are the same people. As we put ourselves in their shoes, these are the same people who knew slavery and knew the harshness of it, knew what that life was like in Egypt. And they were also the same people that had seen God, God's power on display over and over again through his judgments, all the lengths that he went through to deliver them. These were the same people that experienced the Red Sea, the towering walls of water as they crossed through on dry land and their enemies were consumed. These are the same people that day and night had eaten the quail and the manna from the hand of the Lord. These were the same people that had experienced so much but the merciful hands of God. And now the leader is delayed a few days and they go wild. It's easy to read this and to just scoff at the Israelites and at Aaron and be like, well, how dumb can somebody be? Right? Well, if the leader would have done better, then we wouldn't have. We're no different, are we? We too, we know the bitterness of sin. We know the life that, is, uh, that uh, results when we walk in sin. We uh, are people that have seen God answer prayer after prayer, both in our personal lives and in the life of our church, as God has come through time and again, proven himself faithful. We are people, we eat of his provision daily. We walk in his goodness every single day. And then when something doesn't go our way, A prayer is delayed. God tells us to wait. Something doesn't happen according to the way we want it to happen. And what do we do? We go wild. We fill it with with an idol. We fill it with some sort of sin. We take our contributions not to the Lord, but to some disastrous idol. It's not as though he's taken a nap. No, our God is always active. Our God never sleeps in our slumbers. Our God never runs out of energy. He is the omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient one in all things. It's just the reality is his timeline isn't the same as yours nor mine. We can rest in the fact that if you don't have the answer today, if God is calling you to wait, it's because it would not be good for you right now. It's because it would not bring him the most glory. And church, be warned here, disaster always happens when we take matters into our own hands. When God says, wait, and you say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Don't do it. Be warned from Abraham in the earliest pages of our Bible. God makes his promise to Abraham that he would what? He and Sarah would, a child, they would have numerous offspring that they would be a blessed people. And then, uh, you know, a decade goes by and God hasn't come through yet. And so what do they do? God delays in his answer and they're like, well, we better take matters into our own hands. 
They give him Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, and she bears Ishmael. And man, we are still feeling the consequences of that disobedience even today in our world. Disaster always results when we take matters into our own hands. When our desires, even good desires, become demands of the Lord and we have to have it now, it always leads to destruction or disaster which is really exactly where the Israelites are headed, aren't they? Like we left off and we're like, oh, this is bad. This is where they're headed. But church, Moses gets informed of this situation. Moses then intercedes for them on their behalf. Join me now in your Bible and let's continue on with the story. The scene shifts not from the, now from the base of the mountain and now back to the top of the mountain. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is God's word for God's people. And so, like I said, the scene shifts from the base of the mountain, now back to the top of the mountain. And the Lord tells Moses exactly what is happening down below. And in verse 7, he's like, you better get down there. Your people, uh, your people have gone crazy. They've corrupted themselves. So the Lord and to the mediator Moses, he says, you need to go down. And he also tells them then what he's going to do to them. And in verse 9, I've seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, this isn't a prescription for a chiropractor. This is indicative of their heart. They're proud and stubborn. They're rebellious. Stiff-necked, proud. He tells them what happens to, them, what happens to people who are stiff-necked. That his anger, his wrath will burn hot against them and he will consume them. Church, is God playing around here? He's not. He is exceedingly holy. He is unquestionably just. He is incomparably powerful. And it has been shown multiple times over and over that he can consume anything and anyone. He is not to be trifled with. Moses knows this. And so what does Moses do? He pleads with the Lord. He uses his most powerful resource. Prayer. 
He pleads with him. He, what he knows about God's power and his presence and his providence and his promises leads him then to desperate prayers. And it's in his pleading here with the Lord that we uh, really find our next point. And the next thing is we want to be near to God. We must own his promises. We must own God's promises as he prays and he pleads with God. Come back to verse 11 now. See, Moses appeals to several words or promises of God, things that he's done in the past. First, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? And what's interesting about this, when you go back to verse 7, when the Lord is informing Moses what's going on, he's saying, you need to go down for your people. And so is this like some custody battle or whatever here? Like, or is, you know, parents like, hey, you go deal with them. No, these are your kids. You go, you know, you go to talk to them about this. No, Moses is just humbly saying in his pleading, Lord, you've chosen them. You've delivered them. We know what they've said. We know that they have sinfully rebelled against you and said, no, that, 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 that the, this God has delivered us. But we know that that's not true. You have delivered them. You've chosen them. They are yours. He's, 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 he's come back. Moses is being recognized. He's the mediator. He is the one God has sent to them. And they are his people in that sense. But they are God's in the sense that he has adopted them. He is their Lord. He is their master. And so Moses is just humbly appealing to God's uh, deliverance and his adoption of them. Second in verse 12, he, he appeals to their reputation. He's like, well, what are, what are the Egyptians going to think? What, what, is, what is your name going to be? What is your reputation going to come if you consume them now? You promise to make your name known. You promise to make a great nation through this people. And your reputation will be on the line if you consume them now. They will think you failed. They will think you have, uh, are powerless to save them. That they have won in the end. It doesn't stop there. It almost seems to get even uh, uh, pretty audacious in verse 13. See, uh, as he dares to tell God, hey, remember what you said you would do. He appeals back to the Abrahamic covenant beginning in Genesis 12 and repeated again in 15 and 17 and 18. He says, hey, you promised to make these people a, a great nation. Now follow through. Have you forgotten, God, what you said you would do? That's where Moses' only hope is, that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he said he will do. And so even in the prayer, it shouldn't cast doubt on God's faithfulness. But by Moses praying in this way, God relents, verse 14 says. Changes his mind, your translation may say. No, it doesn't say that God is fickle here. God is, you know, he's just up there like a human, like, well, I'm going to change his mind. No, he stays his hand. He acts with mercy, even when he would have been perfectly just to consume them. And so let me ask, church, had he, had God, had the story been different here, and God had consumed them, and, the, and chapter 32 ended in this way, and God uh, wiped out, he sent fire from heaven and destroyed the people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. Could we have said, yep, they got what they deserved? Could have. But behold the mercy of God. Behold the mercy of God to rebellious, sinful people. Part of his plan was to send this one who would intercede to mediate for this person. Part of his plan that now God is, he relents, he is both just and the justifier. We see his holiness, we see his wrath against anger, but he stays his hand in an act of mercy. Redemption 
as you find yourself in a place like this. A place of prayer, whether because you're caught in your own sin or someone you love is caught in sin or someone you love is just headed along into rebellion or even when you find yourself in a place of struggle or just suffering, plead with the Lord in this way. How do we own the promises of God? How do we stay near to Him? How do we plead with the Lord? Well, first, we must remind ourselves of God's previous work. This is for our sake. And just as Moses prays, he says, God, you delivered them, your mighty hand. We've seen you at work in this way. As you pray, recount to the Lord the deeds that he has done. You have proven yourself faithful here and there and there again. Just remind yourself as you find yourself in a place where you, the outcome is maybe uncertain. Second, appeal to uh, God's reputation. As you are praying, your desire should not be that your name would be uh, preserved, not so that your name would be made known, but God's name would be made known, that he would be glorified through whatever situation you find yourself in. God, be glorified. Let not your enemies uh, be seen as the victor, but let you, God, be seen as the victorious one. And then we just rest in his promises in the same way that uh, Moses would take him back to the Abrahamic covenant. As he would, he would uh, come and say, God, I know this is true. I've put my uh, hope in you being faithful to your word. So too we, when we find ourselves in sin, we rest. We own the promise of God. God, you've promised to make a way of escape. I need wisdom here. You've promised to give wisdom to all who ask for it. God, you've promised that good will be worked out in my life. God, you have promised that you will never leave me nor forsake all of God's characteristics, all the truth about him is already true. He's already willing to act on uh, our behalf and for his glory. All we have to do is ask and walk in faithfulness and obedience. Our prayers then are the means by which God's plan unfolds and mercy is then poured out. See this, behold the mercy of God. And here's the thing, even as we experience God's mercy, it doesn't always mean that consequences just go away. It doesn't mean that they just vanish and nobody bears the consequences. Somebody does. But the chapter proceeds here like this. You desire to be near the Lord, then you must own the consequences. They will as well. The, the story continues and consequences are doled out. Come back to the text here in verse 15 and let me read this next portion for us. It says this, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testament. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. 
And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is God's word for God's people. And Moses and Joshua, they come down out, out, off the mountain after 40 days. Remember, they've been up there. And now the verse 15 begins, and they make that trek down. And in there uh, is Moses' hands are these two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. These aren't just ordinary rocks with the etchings or engravings of, of mere men, but these are, have been written with the very uh, finger of God, the way chapter 31 ends and here, this was the very writing of God and on that. And so you can imagine then as they're making the trek down to the mountain and they come, they already know what's happening, but Joshua hears the noise and he mistakes it for war. But instead, the shouts and the movements that they hear is idolatrous worship. People had broken loose and having just met with God, having been up in the very presence, hearing from the Lord, the one who had relented of his white-hot anger, now Moses burns with white-hot righteous anger at their sin. And the consequences come swift and are drastic, aren't they? Like just uh, let's recap it here real quick. First, what does he do in uh, verse 19? He's, he takes the tablets out of his hand and he smashes them. They'd just gotten these from the Lord, just making their way down. What should have been a glorious like present, uh, presentation to the Lord of, I just met with God and here's now how we can meet with them. Instead, they take it and he smashes them as a sign that the people have broken the covenant. What oh, God has said, uh, God has spoken, it, it just right from the get-go smashes them. But then he takes second, he takes the, the, the idol and he pulverizes it. Do you see it in, in, in verse 20, right? He takes it, burns it with fire. First he puts it in there, melts it all down, and then he grounds it to powder. He's just, he's just pulverizing this thing, and then he scatters it on the water and has the people drink it. Drinking it as a sign that they bear the guilt of this great sin. In their consumption of this. The third, the third thing, he confronts the representative leader in verse 21. See this? And Aaron, man, he responds so great as a leader, doesn't he? Owns it, accepts responsibility for it. No, he fumbles this one badly, doesn't he? He fumbles it badly. There's no ownership. There, there's no repentance. He blames the people. He's like, you know them. They're set on evil. I mean, and hearkening back to, to uh, the garden when God confronts Adam. Well, you know that woman. She's just... He goes on to explain what happens. You know, I said, well, if you have some gold, you know, and I just put it in, I put it in the fire and then, whoa, look what happened. The strangest thing, Moses, right? It's like when you confront your kids with, with something like, hey, why, why do you have that cookie in, the, you know, in your hand? I don't know. I was just hungry and then this cookie's just popped in my hand. My parents know this. You've probably got your own stories with your kids. Strangest things happen. 
But things had gotten so bad that look what verse 25 says, the people had broken loose, literally running wild here, running wild like a, a wild Mustangs that had busted out of the corral, doing whatever they wanted. So the fourth consequence here, they, Moses commissions the Levites to exact judgment. Those that would be set aside, the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons and Sons of Levi here, the tribe in which they come from, their first act of priestly service now is to uh, strike down 3,000 men. Blood of their brothers would be the anointing blood of their ordination. And drastic consequences. Redemption, if there's any thought in your mind this morning... That sin has no effect on others, that your sins can stay secret and it won't have any consequences or you can just sweep it under the rug. If any thoughts like that exist in your mind, put them out right now. Note this, sin has devastating consequences. It always does. Always will, it always leads to destruction. The more we run, the more we blame, the more we break loose, the more we refuse to own it, the worse it actually is. His grace, as His Spirit brings to mind this. That's why confrontation from the community of believers is an act of His grace. It's why owning the consequences is His grace to bring us back to Himself. Whereas sin creates the distance. Owning our sin, owning its consequences through repentance closes the distance and brings us back to the Lord. It's a great failure in these verses to do any of this. And so what do we learn from the scriptures? Well, if we're convicted, if we're confronted, how do we own our, the consequences? Well, we must first acknowledge that we've broken the covenant that our sin isn't merely just horizontal, but our sin, all sin, as believers, is an offense against God. We must acknowledge it. And then, church, we must pulverize the idol. Or as Jesus would warn you, he'd say, cut off your arm if it causes you to sin. Pluck it out. We must take drastic action, lest drastic consequences uh, uh, happen. Even worse, we must pulverize it so it can no longer Cause us to sin. And after we acknowledge, after we pulverize, we must accept responsibility for whatever mess our sin has created. Of owning it, walking in it, of, of making the, uh, the changes necessary, of turning away from it. And church, the consequences will no doubt be painful, but his mercy will be poured out even as the consequences this is a warning for us, church, of the grievous nature of our sin and how it separates us from the Lord. But as we pointed out earlier, all of this, we who know Christ, all of this is even possible. The ability to own our sin and to own the promises of God and to own the consequences is only possible is because an atonement has been made. Sacrifice has been made. Something has happened. Somebody has to take the consequences. But in order to be delivered, Christ must own you. Christ must own you. The only way to be near to God is he must own you. And so let's read how the chapter ends and you'll see how we get here. Verse 30 to the end says, the People have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin... 
But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is God's word for God's people. So this, the consequences are doled out. They go to bed and the next day Moses comes and he addresses the Israelites and he says, you've sinned a great sin. That's kind of understandable, right? Like, yeah, yeah, we have. He says, perhaps I can make an atonement. And so he goes before the Lord. He continues pleading. He continues his desperate prayers and he offers himself as a substitute. He tells the Lord, he says, even if it means blotting me out of the book, now, likely not a reference to the, you know, the book of life that you read about in the New Testament revelation, but likely a reference to the census that was taken. That was referred to in the previous chapter, or in chapter 30, rather, as the people, the males of Israel would be counted and they would make a contribution for the uh, temple or the tabernacle, rather. It says, blot me out of that book. If it means that I could be an atonement, if I can stand in the gap, God rejects his offer. Only a perfectly innocent one could be a substitute. Moses was to lead faithfully. He was to be the one. He had just received the instructions. He would lead the people away from the, uh, the Mount Sinai and into the wilderness and into the promised land. He was to lead faithfully through all the instructions that he gave. And those who were guilty would eventually pay with their own life. Because God would visit them, like he said, with a plague. And then eventually the whole generation would die off over the next 40 years as they wander. And I think Moses here knew that he likely could not. He knew the character of God. He knew the ways of God. But in his desperation, he is pleading anyway. God, uh, would you use my life in the same way that Paul would pray in, in Romans 9 10 for that he could be a substitute for his people? Lord says, no. And just so we're clear in who made the idol, the chapter ends, Aaron made the idol. We know it from the first half of it here, but it's almost ironic. Just to be clear, Aaron made the idol. Redemption. Idols make disastrous substitutes. Make disastrous substitutes. They won't satisfy. They for sure can't save you. They won't even even our idols of, of food. It might they may they may temporarily satisfy us for a few hours, but then again those cravings come back. They're only temporary. As we come to food, when we should be coming to the Lord, when we're down, we say, "Oh, I need this" or any other uh, thing that we might consume. Idols of fitness and you know body image. These things are fading. Muscle turns to fat faster than we can keep up with it. And at the end of the day, age catches up with all of us. Our idols of people, family members, our kids, our spouse, friends, people that we, uh, they will always hurt us. They can't carry the weight of worship, of living a life where we give all that we can and all that we are so for, their, uh, for their good is a, th- is a thing that only can be given to the Lord. 
They can't, they can't hold up to this. They make disastrous substitutes. They can't satisfy. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. He, the, these things that I've, I've mentioned, food and fitness and family and friends and people, they, they are gifts of God's grace, but they are not God's. And when God delays, you know, we can't turn to these things to save us. They can't, let alone satisfy you for very long. Only Jesus is a sufficient substitute. Only Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Not even Moses could, though he would foreshadow the one. Though he would foreshadow the one who would leave the presence of God and come down to where the people were running wild. Though he would foreshadow the one who would intercede and mediate on behalf of a rebellious people and plead for mercy. Though he would foreshadow the one who would offer his life as a substitute, who would lay it down and God would accept it. Though Moses would foreshadow the one, church, Jesus is a better Moses. He is a better Moses and to be near to God. Christ had to be the substitute. What he did on the cross was for the glory of God and for our good that we might be saved. He stood in the gap. His offering, his sacrifice was accepted. He now owns us and then is our Lord. Church, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Does Christ own you today? Pray that he does. So we're going to close. We're going to pray and we're going to sing a song. But even as we come to pray, let us come confessing our sin. Let us come confessing him as Lord. We can't come to a passage like this and not, uh, not examine our own life. So if God is bringing conviction, if he is bringing uh, things to mind, now is the time to draw near to God, confessing your sin and confessing Christ as Lord. Pray with